Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 104. If we want them to be doing it in 12, 15 years time and sort of still doing what they need to do, making those sort of gains along the way and still finding it enjoyable, then I can't just sort of hammer them too early. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, and today we have Dr. Josh Seacombe with us from Australia. He is a lecturer at the University of Newcastle. He's also a strength and conditioning coach of the Newcastle North Stars, an ice hockey team. He's done some work with Surfing Australia. And you might remember Josh from the 2020 Coaches Conference where he did a presentation on work in the frontal plane. Uh, Josh, we're excited to have you, man. Thank you, mate. Um, yeah, really appreciate the, the chance to be on here. Um, yeah, real humbling. So thank you. I remember connecting with you briefly back. Uh, it was it might have been my first day on the job here with yeah. the NSCA, uh, and uh, my head was spinning with with all the goings on at Coaches Conference. But I thought it was great. We had that collaborative talk with the ASCA, and you were a part of that event. So I'm really happy to have you here today. And I, uh, I wanted to give you a chance just to talk about your path into the profession and then we'll uh, take it from there. Yeah, yeah perfect. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I started, I did my undergraduate in 2009, finished it um, in 2011. Um, actually did it here at the University of Newcastle as well. So um, in a roundabout way, kind of came full circle. Um, so yeah, did the undergraduate, um, the way it's set up over here um, in Australia, I'm not, I think it's different to, to the Northern Hemisphere, but um, we sort of do the three-year undergraduate, then we have an opportunity to do um, a one-year honours research project. Um, so essentially, it's, it's sort of a, an alternate pathway from a master's. So obviously, the master's, the two-year program, either coursework or research-based, um, whereas the, the honours year here um, is just a, a one-year research project, kind of like a hard and fast version, um, but it's actually a graded one, and then provided that you get usually around say 80 percent or better for the thesis um, then it kind of gives you that that one year uh, earlier entry into a phd so um, did that all here at university of newcastle um, did my honors actually when it came time to the, the honors i sort of had two options there i could either um, potentially go and do it with our, our local professional rugby league team um, the newcastle knights or i um, also had a bit of a an interest and an opportunity in surfing um, and I was sort of throwing tossing the two up sort of grew up with uh, rugby league sort of as the, the background here is very much sort of the, the local sort of uh, I guess working class sort of sport here um, but then surfing was also just a more hobby sport um, I, I'm still pretty rubbish at it um, <laughs> but it was just that one where it was just an opportunity to do that uh, Dr. Jeremy Shepherd had just started in the role up at Surfing Australia as well as head of uh, strength and conditioning and sports science there. And um, luckily I had the chance to meet him and he sort of said, oh, I'll jump on the, the honours project, give you a bit of a hand with it. And then um, if it all goes well, we get on, I like you, that kind of thing. Um, then there's an opportunity to do a PhD um, up at Surfing Australia uh, through, through them. Um, so luckily it all sort of went well, really enjoyed it and then had an opportunity to go do my PhD up there. So um, just up northern New South Wales. So yeah, had the opportunity to do that and finished the, the honours year, went straight up there. Um, and luckily my, my co-supervisor um, just drew their relationship was uh, Dr. Sophia Nymphius as well. So 
it was kind of one I was just lucky to, I guess, sort of stumble into a scenario, just having two really great mentors and, um, yeah, just got, got super lucky in that and then spent uh, the three years up there. So the way it was set up at Surfing Australia was that um, there was a relationship between Surfing Australia and uh, Edith Cowan University where um, provided that we sort of qualified for a PhD scholarship, then we're able to be based full-time at Surfing Australia. So we just needed across that three years, just complete our PhD. Um, but then at the same time, we're just given a, a role in the high performance team there. So essentially, um, Jeremy was sort of there on a day-to-day -day basis. So was sort of managing all the, the sports science aspects from ECU, providing that, that link between the uni. Um, and then there was myself and four other PhD scholars at the time. So yeah, just that setup where doing our PhDs, having a, a role. Um, so there was myself and another guy, Ty Tran, uh, doing strength and conditioning, uh, Lena Lundgren in biomechanics, and then Oliver Farley in physiology. Um, so yeah, just a, a really great scenario, I guess, having sort of two, two great mentors um, and also just that opportunity to, to sort of have that, that integration between the PhD and that sort of high performance environment. Um, so I, I did my, the three years there, um, then sort of signed on and did another, what was that there, probably another year and a half. Um, so the idea was that once I'd finished the PhD, then I, I sort of signed a contract to stay on as assistant strength and conditioning coach um, and sports science sort of under Jeremy. And then uh, he actually left, got the offer um, back to got the offer to move back home to Canada, be closer to his family, take on a, a role with the Canadian Sports Institute. Um, and then I kind of got sort of thrust into um, the, the head of SNC type role, which I think it, at first that was one where I was just like, oh, this is, this is great. Like this is going to be great for the career. Um, and the way it was set up was he was always head of SNC and, and sports science manager. So I essentially split the role. Um, so I took the sports science manager role. Um, I had the, the head of SNC role, um, and and that was sort of how we we did it for about uh, about eighteen months, um, and then there was a, a couple of issues there as such. I guess that uh, probably everyone can relate to. Um, the, the the people making the calls uh, have a, a different direction to the way we think it's going. Uh, a few sort of funding issues, that type of thing, and then uh, next thing you know, you're kind of looking for a new job. Um, but it was, it was a good opportunity. It was one where, I guess I sort of touched on it just then, it was nice to, in, in my head, I was like, I wanted to have that, that opportunity to sort of lead a program. But then there was times when I was like, okay, I'm probably not ready for this. But at the same time, probably really thankful for that opportunity because it just gave me a, I guess through making quite a few mistakes, um, gave me a, a really sort of nice opportunity to, to almost do, I guess, like a, uh, almost like a strength and like a SWOT analysis on myself as such. Like I think you sort of go through and um, you sort of, I guess, straight out of university going straight into like a high performance role, you kind of just think like, okay, well, like this high performance aspect's sort of easy. It's, it's an easy pathway. But then I guess when you get sort of thrown into a role, you in hindsight, definitely not ready for. Um, it just gives you that chance to probably just push the reset button a little. Um, so yeah, some... Some really good uh, or good learning stories, not great stories. And I, I think we might sort of touch on them a bit later. Um, but definitely some ideas around sort of, uh, and as I said, in that role, just ideas around um, and some really good learnings around how research should sort of fit into the performance environment, 
uh, also working um, sort of alongside coaches and uh, understanding the culture of the sport and integrating that in from a high performance and a research standpoint. That was probably the, the biggest um, biggest sort of areas that I've sort of gained in in that. Um, and you're happy to, I guess, share some stories later when we kind of get into those topics potentially. Um, but yeah, after, after that, I, um, I then went up to Queensland Academy of Sport, um, just part of the, the Olympic system over here. Um, and that was a great role, like great pedigree, awesome sort of coaches. Um, and unfortunately, just due to sort of family circumstances, I was only able to sort of stay there nine months. Um, it was a pretty much a two hour commute each way for me sort of every day. Um, we were due, my wife was pregnant with our third kid. Um, so it just it was just sort of one where as much as I love that role and um, that was really cool going from, I guess going from that like sort of head SNC role then back into just being one of eight SNC coaches, having that opportunity to sort of share and, and learn and just get out of the, the bubble I was stuck in for about six years um, was a really great one. As I said, really enjoyed that role. Got to work with a, a huge range of sports as well. Um, but just due to the, the family, the travel side, I was like, I couldn't justify four hours away from my wife and kids um, just on a daily basis for that. Um, after that, then took a role uh, with the police force, which is sort of like a, a rehab type sort of role. So um, officers that were sort of off on injuries. Um, some of it was sort of psychological injuries, but then a lot of them were like uh, ACL rehab, shoulder reconstructions, that type of thing. Um, so working in, in that scenario. Um, so getting, I, I guess, had the opportunity to do a lot more sort of rehab um, and also just see the, I guess, the, the mental health benefits a bit more of um, exercise. Definitely not something I could possibly sort of go in and uh, do again. Um, found it quite draining and I probably just didn't, uh, didn't sort of take care of myself in those instances. Um, but again, some, some really sort of good learnings from that. Um, and then at the same time I was doing that, I actually kind of got asked to contract back to uh, Surfing Australia, which was a, a fun conversation when nine months prior, you're being told they don't need you. So your job's been made redundant. Here's your payout. Then nine months later, you get a call going, oh, we've got 10 athletes. Any chance you can come back and work with them? So uh, luckily, I, like I only lived sort of 400 metres um, from, from the facility. Uh, plus as well, a lot of those athletes that I went back to, to work with or ones that I'd sort of worked with in that sort of previous sort of five to six year period. So a lot of the juniors that had come up made the world tour. Um, so just sort of had a, a duty there and um, just sort of, yeah, just fit. So I did that for about nine months. Um, there was the joke in my family that I was pretty much doing maternity leave contracts. I had three jobs in a row where I was doing nine months. So one, the commuting one, that one. And then we actually, um, by that stage, we'd, sort of had we had the three kids um and then all our families back in in newcastle where we're back now i uh, had a, a job offer to come back and work at a, um, a private high school here just to sort of run the strength and conditioning there um i figured why not i've sort of done every other sort of career path we can really go down in snc um so i may as well give that a crack um but yeah we came back it just was a really good fit for the family came back and again, did that one for nine months as well, felt bad, but then um, had the offer to, to come to the university. And um, academia was always something where, I guess when I did the, the PhD initially, it was sort of a, a combination of things. The, the research side is one of my hugest interests. I always sort of struggle between 
enjoying the research, enjoying the, uh, I guess the relationship aspect of coaching, but the, the research was a really important thing to me. So the opportunity to come back and do this, um, I guess sort of it's a lot better for the family, um, just hours or that type of thing as well. Um, but in saying that, I've sort of been back, it was initially sort of a little hesitant um, because as I said, I always sort of had the thought that I'd maybe try to do sport till I was 40, 45, and then probably try to go into academia. Um, the offer came up and I was still, I think 30. And I was like, oh, am I, am I sort of throwing the coaching towel in a bit early? Um, but it was just one where I, I just sort of felt it was the right decision. And in saying that I've been in the, uh, in the job close to, oh, I think about 18 months now. Um, so firstly, it's the, the first time I haven't just taken a nine month job for a long time. So that tells me that I'm in the right thing, but as well, just been, um, just really, really enjoying it. I uh, really enjoy the, the teaching, the education side. Um, I think it's that one where uh, it's the one where I was like, oh, whenever I'm say working with a team, working with athletes, I can maybe hopefully provide benefit to 20 people. Um, whereas hopefully by sort of working with the, the undergraduates and the research students, if we can maybe share them and help them develop some skills and um, a lot of the teaching I do is more around here's a list of all the mistakes I've made try not to make these um, I'm like well we've got we've got about roughly 400 students so I'm like hopefully if those 400 go out into some type of coaching role whether it's sport clinical whatever the scenario if they're working with 20 people then hopefully the, the overall sort of benefits better so that's awesome you're still young and you you've really taken on a lot of different roles in this in this field you know one thing that kind of jumps out to me from your story and you mentioned it you had great mentors uh, yeah. that led you into uh, the sport of surfing you know a sport that we don't typically think about with strength and conditioning I think it's really cool when you find these call them untraditional type sports that you know it's not really a ground-based sport but there are ground-based elements to you know foot contact with the board yeah. and it's a very fluid dynamic you know it's a water sport I don't think a lot of American strength coaches really think or aspire to work with surfing, but I think these are really cool, almost case studies in a way of how would I approach a sport like that? And if you would just break down the sport of surfing from a strength and conditioning standpoint, you know, on, on kind of a basic level of, you know, how you guys approach training for those athletes. And uh, I think that'll be really cool to hear. I'll backtrack a little bit. Um, so I guess sort of when I was saying where I had the, opportunity to sort of go uh, rugby league or surfing from a, a research standpoint obviously that the mentor side was a huge selling point um, but the other part was pretty well we touched on it where you're saying the idea where it was I was sort of looking at it and there was pretty much no high performance culture um, like when I went and started that was February 2013 was when I went up to the high performance center um, up until that point I literally in my, my honors research we just did GPS on surfing, that was my honours, um, and I think I think I was able to reference maybe five studies like total across surfing. Like so, it was that one where there was just there was nothing sort of there, um, or not nothing. There was there was some really great work, but um, a lot of work sort of from the the late '80s, early '90s, and then sort of nothing kind of through the early 2000s. Um, so it was one where I saw there was a bit of an opportunity there when we went into surfing, it was very much like, there was just, as I said, no high performance culture there, which on one hand you might look at and go, oh, okay, well, that's a, an issue. Um, but it was really amazing because on 
sort of for two reasons. The first one being that um, we could kind of go in and almost sort of set the culture that we wanted. Um, obviously, with a lot of your professional team sports, it's very like there's certain things that's just ingrained, and I'm sure you've heard it. I know probably with, with baseball, there's certain things where it's like, oh well, this is just the way we do it, and you're like, oh yeah, but maybe we could do it this way or why, and it's just like, well. No, that's the sport, mate. Like that's that's just what we do, um, and it's very sort of similar to some of the sports here, where there's just there's just certain things that are ingrained in, and then it's sort of filtered down over the last 20 years. So then you've got the 15, 16 year old development athletes coming through with that culture, and then sort of trying to break that can be be a bit of a difficulty. So I think the and I've sort of spoken about this a bit before, like with our professional rugby league teams and um, the the contact sports from 13, 14 years old, like they're, they're in the gym, they're lifting heavy, they're getting strong, they're getting bigger. But then when it comes to, I guess, trying to sell the, the mobility, the range of motion, just taking care of your body, that can be the, the difficult sell. Um, whereas with surfing, it was probably the opposite. Surfing, before we came in, their high performance training was doing yoga and maybe sort of partying in a way that's not optimal from a performance standpoint. Like that was pretty much it. <laughs> Uh, so it was that one where we kind of came in and it was like we didn't have to sell them on like the mobility um, or that type of thing. Like they were pretty well sort of taking care of, of the aspect themselves. But then we'd come in and we're like, okay, we're going to do strength training. And we just get like, sometimes we just get like these looks like, nah, like you're kidding. Like what's that? Like, oh, we're doing yoga with like a weight vest. Oh, yeah. And, like that was, I think, what they sort of thought we we're going to be doing. But um, like one of the, the studies that I probably most in, enjoyed out of mine was just looking at the relationship between the counter movement jump, squat jump, mid-thigh pull, um, and how it related to the uh, scores that athletes got in competitive um, events. So because essentially in surfing, the more water you displace, so the harder you push on the bottom of the board, the more water that's displaced, the judges sort of determine that as how much power there is behind the manoeuvres. Um, and that's one of the, the major scoring components. So then we had the research there um, and then the ability to translate it to the athletes and the coaches saying, okay, well, we can see that there's, it was like a 0.8 correlation, I think, between um, peak force in a counter movement jump and mid-thigh pull and the scores, like their uh, like ranking for scores. Um, so just had, then we had the foundation there where we could, rather than just saying to them, oh, we need to squat so you get stronger, we had the research to go, if you get stronger and sort of can produce more force in these qualities, um, in these tests, we know that you're going to score more highly. Obviously, the more highly they score, the more chance they are of winning competitions and so forth. Um, and then the other sort of key component, and this was one of Jeremy's first studies, was, um, again, we know that the faster you sprint paddle, the earlier you can get onto a wave, the more waves you're going to catch. Obviously, massive component of surfing. Um, and the, the sort of main sort of research that came out of his work and also Joseph Coins was that um, essentially the stronger you are in a pull-up up to about 1.3 times body weight for a 1RM, um, the greater transfer you get to sprint paddling performance. Um, so those were sort of the, the bases that we had um, and sort of set the, I guess, sort of the, the building blocks for our training programs. Um, and then, so going back to, to your original question, now our training programs, to be honest, don't look too dissimilar from the majority of other sports because we know that the stronger, more powerful you are in the lower body, the better you're gonna be able to do um, in the wave riding component. We know that the stronger, more powerful you are in the upper body component, particularly pulling, um, that 
Therefore, you can catch bigger waves, you can catch more waves, get into it with greater speed, which also significantly benefits your um, performance as well. Um, and then the other parts are um, just looking at uh, things around um, sort of like adduction, abduction uh, ratios. And we'd sort of done a bit of a retrospective study, um, sort of identifying that the athletes with um, sort of significantly reduced adduction to abduction had a greater sort of risk of MCL type injuries, which is a, a big issue in surfing. Um, a lot of Lena's work um, was around sort of landings. And we sort of saw that uh, the combination of sort of mid-thigh pull strength. So pretty much if you're over about three and a half to four times body weight on a mid-thigh pull, um, you need a wall sort of greater than 15 centimetres, then it significantly reduces um, the sort of loading you get from a, like a drop and stick task. And we know that that translate into um, say landing aerial manoeuvres. So quite often you've got athletes landing aerial manoeuvres from sort of four to five foot above the, the water and then landing down and obviously solid board and at that speed, the, the water's pretty solid as well. Like it's not giving too much. Um, and just some pilot data we had was that um, like you're looking at from a, even just from like a two foot drop um, from the top of a wave to the bottom, you're looking at around at the, at the ankles, probably around eight to nine times body weight um, in force. So therefore majority of the aerials nowadays are from about four to five feet in the air. So can only kind of hazard a guess at what types of loads we're seeing there. So we knew that, ankle mobility and strength through the whole lower body was important for that aspect. Um, and then there was some, there's been a lot of research done um, over uh, by Jeff Nessler um, over at University of California, San Marcos, I think it is. Can't remember off the top of my head. It's, I'm pretty sure it's that one, uh, but they've done a lot of work like in a flume looking at um, paddling performance um, and just seeing that essentially just you can sort of see from that research just the high loads that are placed on um, the rotator cuff, particularly the infraspinata. So again, from that, we sort of saw that research. Also know that the, one of the major complaints we get from our athletes was um, just a lot of sort of upper trap tightness, a lot of fatigue through the shoulders. So then making sure we're doing a lot of work in that space. Um, so yeah, you can sort of see, I guess, from that, that it's all around that force production, force absorption. So we'd always be doing Olympic lifts, uh, squats, deadlifts, single leg squats, um, a lot of pull-ups, a lot of like a lot of upper body pulling. So all different types of rows. Um, and then uh, a lot of work sort of for the adductors, abductors, uh, trunk stability um, and sort of rotator cuff. So that was sort of the foundation. But with the, the energy system conditioning, that was probably where it, it differed a bit because um, the professional athletes anyway, usually surfing, 20 to 30 hours in a week. Um, so obviously really high training load. We know from all our sort of GPS time motion research that pretty much no matter what type of wave it is, uh, where you are in the world, so whether it's Europe, Hawaii, Australia, um, pretty much 50% of the time that you're in the water surfing, it's paddling. Um, so again, we sort of know from that like 20 to 30 hours. So it's that 10 to sort of 15 hours a week just of paddling. Again, there's a lot of sort of issues around um, or sort of just wear and tear and sort of fatigue around the, the rotator cuff. Um, and as well, we just sort of saw that once they kind of got to 15, 16 years old, their aerobic capacities were pretty well sort of maximized. So whatever they were, their aerobic capacity was 15, 16, it really didn't get any better after that. Um, and it also didn't need to, it wasn't a quality that we needed more of. There was just a, a minimum threshold. So based on that, we never really used to do a lot of paddling 
paddling conditioning or paddling work because it, the sport pretty well took care of itself in that regard. Um, so the only time we'd use paddling conditioning is if, um, if the athletes, for example, were going to like a, a big wave location, so Hawaii, um, Tahiti, where they needed more sort of sprint paddling. Um, and we might do a little bit of work around that, but more, again, that sprint interval type work. Um, or if, for example, the wave, like they just didn't surf for three or four weeks, then we might sort of look at incorporating some. Um, but most of our uh, sort of conditioning type training was more just like a mixed methods, um, mixed methods type focus. So like a lot of sled, uh, sometimes like some bike intervals, battle ropes, that type of thing, more like a, yeah, just that, that mixed methods type conditioning where essentially just trying to jack the heart rate up and then recover quickly. Because from that physiological standpoint, that, that heart rate control, um, so being able to just sort of increase the heart rate to nearly max and then recover as quickly as possible. That was sort of more where, um, I guess, the relevance to the sport came in and we didn't want to just jack up the shoulders too much. So that's where we looked at those other methods. That's a deep dive. I'm ready to hit the waves, man. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I might no, take a time to drive from Colorado. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the waves are at 14,000 feet here, so it's a little, yeah. bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit different. But um, no, it's, it's really interesting. And like I said, I, I, I've always really enjoyed those, like, whether it's a case study or just those challenges outside of traditional sports that most of us work with. And I thought there was a lot of really great messages in there, like, you know, avoiding too much too soon when you're working with athletes that aren't accustomed to traditional strength and conditioning, um, identifying KPIs that you're going to emphasize during your training process. And, and it yeah. also speaks to recognizing opportunities, uh, for, looking into new areas in the field, you know, surfing was pretty much untapped, you know, without yeah. a lot of information. And you were able to really, uh, on this podcast, but just in your work, really provide a lot of context and support for anyone in the future who wants to work in this area. And the other area you touched on was just looking at common injury trends in the sport, because obviously health yeah. and performance are, are usually the key, um, key areas that we're focused on. Um, as performance professionals. And so, you know, one thing I want to ask you, you know, your process of, you you've spoke a lot to the lessons you've learned as a practitioner and a coach, but this sort of paralleled your research and your uh, dissertation. And these were very intertwined processes for you. Is that the common path for strength and conditioning coaches in Australia to be very connected with sports science research or was that unique to your path i'd say maybe like a 50 50 um it's becoming a lot more common um and i think to be honest we'll see it maybe ramp up again just sort of in regards particularly to professional sport post-covid um just with the idea that essentially it's a lot it's a lot cheaper for the the organization to have a student come in um, undertake a research study where essentially the, the uni is going to be picking up a portion of the, the funding. So rather than say having to outlay, I don't know, let's say 70, 80 grand for an assistant SNC, potentially they can bring in a, a research student in strength and conditioning and maybe they kind of share the cost. So it might cost them say 20, 20 grand a year or whatever. Um, so I think we might sort of see it come, come a little bit more in like that. Um, I, I've got a few friends that have sort of been through um, a similar pathway. Um, and I know that, essentially the model that sort of Soph and Jeremy took up the Surfing Australia that I got to go through, that was 
Um, I think they sort of initially got that idea because like the AIS was doing a lot of that. Um, so it's something that's definitely a lot more apparent. Um, in the sports science realm, um, it's, it's pretty well all the, or not all, but the majority of sports science roles in professional sport over here are filled in that model with the strength and conditioning, not, not so much, um, but there is still definitely scenarios there. Um, and to be honest, like I've got um, a couple of PhD students uh, at the university now that they're in sort of similar type, um, similar type roles as well. So for me, I know it was one that I found extremely beneficial. Um, so I think it's one that I'm going to essentially try to give other students coming through that opportunity as well, because um, it just gives you that nice balance. Also gives you a bit of a, an entry path into the field as well. Um, but yeah, I think there's, and there's a lot of, um, just a lot of, I think, lessons that you can kind of kind of get from that pathway um, that can be really beneficial and um, also just allow you, I guess, to sort of focus on what's important for the sport. So, Yeah. Um, Josh, I want to ask you, you know, what are you working on now? What are some of the research areas that you are focusing on at this point in your career? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, like, I mean, my kind of – the area that I'm working on personally – um, is just looking all around sort of uh, like ice hockey type research. Um, the issue we've obviously got is um, like out here in Australia, like we don't have the, the calibre of athletes that you have there, obviously, um, or in Europe. But luckily what we sort of find is with our, um, our National League here, what tends to happen is that each year our National League team, so there's eight teams across the country, um, and it runs over, over your summer, so our winter um, and each year, essentially, we're allowed to have sort of four to six um, import players that we get out. Um, and a lot of those athletes come from uh, maybe like sort of late career from the minors, so like the AHL, East Coast, a few out of like NCAA and that. Um, so what, what we sort of find is that uh, probably six years ago, you'd just have those import players and you'd have a lot of local players. Whereas now we've got um, a lot of local players that have maybe spent time overseas or what happens for the most part is the athletes that initially come out as an import, they stay for two or three years. Uh, they find love, then they get Australian citizenship. So pretty much now our league just filled with ex Canadians and Europeans and um, Americans. So um, as I said, the, the issue of God is obviously just the, the caliber of athletes. But for me, it's just like, I grew up playing rugby league. Then I've sort of moved over, started playing ice hockey. Like we've got uh, like a, a good rink only 10 minutes from my home. Um, and just sort of fell in love with the sport. Um, also helps that I got about probably 60% of my friends are Canadian. So um, it gives that. So I'm working on a couple of areas um, sort of in that space. Um, taking the adductor, abductor work um, that I'd sort of looked at with Surfing Australia and applying it to, to hockey. Because again, obviously, just the rate of sort of groin hip injuries um, being so prevalent in the sport. Um, then also just just looking at a, a couple of other themes around just trying to individualize um, monitoring for some for some athletes. Um, so are they more sort of frontal or sagittal dominant um, and those types of areas. Um, and then the other one for me is just um, trying to just work with a, a couple of sort of sports and a couple of sort of local um, local professional teams um, and, and just that one. And I know I think you said we're maybe going to touch on it a bit later, but from um, sort of my time with Surfing Australia it was that one where I really sort of saw the importance um, and the value of actually going to the athletes and coaches and saying, like, what's the, what's the performance questions you have? Like, what's going to help you benefit your performance rather than 
previously I used to take a, an approach of, oh, this is what I think is important. I'll go do the research. Then I'll go, hey, look at these this data. And then the athlete or coach sort of tells me it's not really that useful. And then I'm there sort of kicking cans. Um, uh, sort of, yeah, as I said, just learn that importance of going, okay, what is it you guys need? What's going to help you? Then coming up with the research question and then sort of doing the study. So just trying to look more at that. So just working, as I said, with sort of um, more sort of targeted groups or sports, going to them saying, like, is there anything I can help you with? Um, and then just trying to answer some actual sort of important questions there. Yeah. On that last part, you know, it's really speaks to the value of being a, a researcher, but also a practitioner that can relate yes. and um, cater sort of your research areas towards relevant, you know, relevant topics that are going to connect with coaches and athletes. And here at the NSCA, we all, I get, I get caught saying bridge the gap a lot, you know, between science yeah. and application. And that truly, you know, that's a quest that we just need to keep working through and keep, yeah. you know, whether it be our, our journals or, or any journal, you know, how, how can we make research more, uh, more useful, you know, on the ground level with, with athletes and coaches. Um, and I think that's so interesting and you, you truly are taking on a lot of, uh, a lot of projects and, uh, it's cool that you've, <laughs> you've worked with two very different sports when you look at surfing and then you look at hockey and just that, you know, foot to ground interaction versus you're on ice and then you're on water with a surfboard. I mean, I think that's so cool that you've, you've kind of navigated both of those. I was going to say, when I actually came over for the, um, for the conference, uh, like the one at San Antonio, I, I did a little stop in, um, in LA, just a sort of like a 16 hour stop, caught a hockey game. And I uh, luckily had like a bit of a, a friend connection with one of the coaches um, for one of the teams I saw. And, I remember just going in and he sort of introduced me to some of the team, some of the players and, um, and they're like, so you like surfing, like you've mainly worked with surfing and you love hockey. Like, like they're just like, how does that work? And I was like, <laughs> initially I thought the same as well. But then when we look sort of like, if you look at the breakdown of positions you are in a surfboard, the types of injuries, like there's actually a, a lot of transfer. So um, the, the position that particularly that the hips in, that the ankles in during say the end of a stride in hockey is actually very similar to um, the position sort of when they're sort of coming out of a turn on a surfboard, just with the fact that you got that hip ab abduction at sort of that up to sort of 40, 50 degrees, um, a lot of weight placed over sort of that, that front leg um, going through like a high range of sort of dorsiflexion. So um, yeah, that's a, or that's sort of how I try to, weasel my way into those conversations anyway just because i enjoy it so much but. no it's cool um you know it speaks to the the versatility of sports general training and i think you know we get so sagittal plane focused at times and yeah. that you know and just all the abductor adductor work you know that's very promising for the future of how we better understand movement in the frontal plane i know that's something that yeah uh, coming from the baseball world, that's an area that we, uh, and the transverse plane, those are areas that are, they've always been there, but they, they're emerging, you know, in terms of our, our emphasis during the training process. So that, I think that's really cool. I want to ask you before we wrap up here, you mentioned that you sort of hit an audible with your uh, plan to go into academia uh, around 45, you went in a little bit earlier, you have family and you really um, value, you know, the path that you've taken and, and want to uh, 
mentor other PhD students and coaches, what advice do you give to young coaches or maybe what's some advice that you got that's really helped you along the way? Some, some advice I got was more, again, just, I guess, making, making mistakes, not making mistakes per se, but just not doing certain things. Um, the, the big one for me was just, just getting in and actually coaching. Um, and that's sort of been a, a really, uh, I guess, sort of prominent uh, issue um, and something that we've tried to fix with our program here. Um, because for me, it was one where, like, I went through the undergrad, did the honours, and then I remember just just before I sort of went up and started the PhD, I actually went and um, uh, Jeremy was actually down sort of visiting because um, it was about where I am now to where Surfing Australia was. It's about eight hours away. Um, he was actually visiting doing some um, sort of, like, clinic-based stuff with some of the regional um, sort of areas. And I went along and he was like, yeah, just come coach with me. And it was that one where I remember just walking in and I was like, Shit, this is actually like the first time I've been exposed to, to actually sort of delivering exercise. Um, so the luckily um, in the, the two courses that I teach um, as part of our degree, um, I was given the opportunity just to, to totally rewrite them. Um, they're essentially like two courses around strength and conditioning and um, we actually started with our new first years last week um, and the, the first session um, I actually hit them with was just a, like they just had to, to communicate, like actually coach. Um, so it was like a lot of them were walking in first day, finished high school last year, kind of crapping themselves. And um, I just showed them actually just this four minute clip I um, actually found of uh, Lauren Landau and we we're just doing just some 20 meter Excel sort of coaching. So I just gave them just based on his video. And then we spoke about it, um, just going, okay, these are sort of the, the three key things for acceleration that you want to be focused on. Um, and then I literally just said to them, I was like, all right, grab your bags. We're going over to the basketball court and you're just going to coach each other. Um, and you could just see some of them were just so uncomfortable with that. Um, but I think that's, that's one thing um, is just the more and more sort of opportunity you have to coach um, and then the, the follow-up lab that we've sort of had this week, um, I, I felt like I was kind of getting a bit like hippie, a bit psychology, but um, I actually, I'd done it a couple of times in a few roles and then got them to do it, which was just doing like a, a personality type test. Um, now, again, I know it sounds you're like, oh man, you're going out of scope of practice there, but um, got them to do that. And then sort of from that, like this one I, I found online, um, that's really sort of quite straightforward it gives you like a really nice sort of breakdown of um, your personality like traits. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily group them as like strengths and weaknesses per se, but it just says this personality type, like you'll have this trait, this trait, this trait. Um, and then what we sort of do from that, I was sort of like workshop it um, where I just sort of say to them, like the, the mass, the biggest thing for me in a coaching environment. Um, and again, through, through a mistake that I made is just being, like genuine or authentic in your coaching um, because initially like I'd sort of gone in and I mean, I can't be, I, I can't sort of use uh, anonymity now because I've said Jeremy's name enough times, but I still remember like the first couple of times I went in and was coaching with Jeremy and I was, I guess still was trying to find my way coaching because as I said, I hadn't done a whole lot. Um, and I sort of saw at that stage, I know it, it, coaches a little differently now but at that stage particularly some of the athletes where we were just trying to just hammer that that culture in initially um he very much had that sort of more like that old school not authoritarian but very kind of like hardest i don't know if I say that or not but um 
like where he'd sort of come in and he's like, nah, you're doing this, that, like very direct, very forceful. Um, and obviously, I, like I admired his coaching a lot. And then I remember just sitting there one day, it was like a Friday session and I was looking at him and I'm like, well, this is the coach I respect the most. That's how he coaches. Like, I, I got to go coach like that. And then the next week I came in on the Monday morning and I'm just trying to be like a tough guy, just like, I'm like, do this, don't do that. You're five minutes late, get out of here. Like, and then it was sort of that one I was doing it. I was, I was giving myself anxiety because I just just felt weird. And I remember after, at the end of the week, one of our more senior athletes came to me and he sat me down and he's like, what's, what's going on? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, is everything okay with me? Like, you're, like at home, like, what, what, like what's up? You're angry. I was like, oh, no, nah, I'm just trying to coach. And he's like, he's like this isn't you he's like you're the guy that comes in is making jokes all the time tells us to do our work like wants to chat with us and then like we, we finish the session and he's like what, what are you doing this week like you're serious you haven't made any jokes and I was like oh yeah I sort of sat there mulled over the weekend and I was like yeah no nah, like that's that's fair like just wasn't being genuine like trying to be someone that I wasn't um as I said the purpose I got the the first years um, to, to sort of do that, that personality type test, as I said, like we just sort of go through it and then I'm like, okay, pick out six of the personality traits that sort of jump out. Um, and then like, let's just chat around them. Cause I'm like, there's always things that you can, can work to a strength, but then things you need to be um, aware of as a, a weakness. Um, so like I did mine two weeks ago, just so I sort of was, I guess, current with what sort of was going to come out in it. Um, and some of the things for me are just like, I like to sort of um, kind of use like humor and um, essentially just try to relate to people and that type of thing um, as a communication style. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Like I'll try to make a joke and just genuinely show an interest in like what's going on in their life. Cause I think from the, the training standpoint, it's like, well, it's an hour, maybe an hour and a half out of their day. Like there's all this other time that if they're better in a sort of mental state um, and everything else is working in their life, then that's going to make that easier. Their performance is going to be better. So I always try to take that approach. Um, and I just, like, I like having a joke. Like it's what I enjoy. Um, it's probably the only intelligent stuff that I sometimes say. So um, like, I just, I just like to use that. Like I just like making things fun. Um, but then one of the other aspects is that, that like one of my traits was that like I can be, talkative um, and as you can see like some of the it's still a weakness that I'm working on because some of the questions you've asked are probably went about three times longer than I needed to um, but that's what I was sort of saying to the students I'm like yeah like an aspect is I can be too talkative so I said I need to be aware of that particularly when giving feedback giving cues because whilst I try to practice and uh, make sure that I just keep my cues as minimal as possible not sort of confuse them Sometimes, like I need to be aware of the fact that if I'm not 100% sure in what I've identified, that I can maybe just talk too much, confuse the athlete more, um, and then just sort of do more harm than good. So, like I just had them go through that. So, I think yeah, the the biggest advice I have is just making sure, particularly say graduates, people studying, people new to the profession, is um, just yeah, just getting as much opportunity to coach as possible, but then also just doing it just as authentically and as genuine as possible. Yeah, it speaks to the value of how we relate to athletes, but also how we relate to coaches of that up and coming generation, the next generation of coaches, professors, researchers. And so, uh, Josh, just uh, opportunity for you to share your contact information for any of our listeners who want to get in contact. Yeah, yeah, sure. My, um, 
Uh, email is probably uh, it's the one I'm on the most now. Um, but email is just josh.secom, S-E-C-O-M-B, at newcastle.edu.au. Um, also on Twitter, at 37seco, S-E-C-O. Um, sometimes I put intelligent stuff there. And for the most part, I just sort of lurk around, just trying to look for ideas and come across <laughs> research. But I reckon I find most of the, sort of like the good new research coming out as well. But um, I try to be interactive on that as possible, so... Awesome, man. Well, thanks for being with us today. No, thank you so much, Eric. Appreciate it. Hey, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'd also like to say thank you to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community. So follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to nsca.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.